0: I don't know if you've ever had a situation come up where you've argued to a point of no return. You've argued with someone, whether your spouse, a coworker, a friend, when you're watching a, a game or a match or whatever it might be, that there's this argument that takes place and it gets so far to a point where you say, put your money where your mouth is. Have you ever experienced something like that? Maybe not exactly in those terms, but if you're watching a fight, if you're watching a sporting event, if you're thinking of information, a fact that you know for a fact, you know the fact about, but then you look up on Google and you find out you were wrong the entire time. You tell someone, put your money where your mouth is. That's a way of going the the extra distance to try to describe to someone how right you are about a situation. Do I have any people in the room that always need to be right? And you're like, always, Pastor. That's why I always have the last word. Whether you're that person or not, or you've experienced that before, it can easily get to a point where we recognize that there is a point of no return that there's somewhere in the conversation where it's like, you know what, I have fought tooth and nail for as long as I can, and I can't go back. I can't turn back on all these words I've said, so I'm gonna hunker down, I'm gonna put my roots here, and I'm gonna die on this hill because I must be right. You see, this this phrase, put your money where your mouth is, is kind of a way of uh, trying to passionately prove not something about the fact itself necessarily, but more about the fact that we know The fact. That it comes off as this arrogant and rude way of saying, I am right, you are wrong, watch and see what happens. And so our passion for something could sometimes get the best of us in that scenario, but when we are saying this phrase, put your money where your mouth is, we're trying to show someone that we are willing to not only talk about this thing, but to back it with evidence of something that we've given to it, whether it's a nonprofit organization, a charity, a church, someone who's doing something incredible in a community, an after-school program, and however, most examples of this phrase are used in politics. I support this bill, I support this candidate, I support this proposition, I oppose this, I oppose that. And people will say, okay, if you support or oppose that thing, put your money where your mouth is. This idiom is a way of describing someone who will do something rather than just talk to take actions that support an opinion, a statement or a position to use your own money in support of something you say you support. It's that old phrase to talk the talk and to walk the walk. And if you look on Twitter, you can find someone very easily who is good at talking the talk, but not necessarily walking the walk. If you've seen that meme before of the two dogs and they're barking and and snarling at each other uh, between a gate and then that gate starts to open and then they're like all friendly and like cute and like, oh, hey, hey, what's up, buddy? Like that's what it seems like when we're on social media and we have to put our money where our mouth is and we have to prove to someone that we know what's right and we have to go to great lengths to make sure that they know we are right about some information. But when you get face to face with someone, you might not have that same interaction You might actually have a little bit more courtesy, a little more humility. And so a way to understand this spiritually is something I'm calling my sermon today, Put Your Foot Where Your Faith Is. Put your foot where your faith is. If we truly stand by what we believe, we will take action to not only live it out, but to show others how to live it out as well. And so here James gives us three commands to put our foot where our faith is. I don't know if you're a fan of change, I don't know if you like to see change take place, whether it's every four years in the White House, or if it's day to day in the weather, or if it's whatever it might be. I I like change, I like to see change, I like when things are kind of mixed up a little bit, it kind of spices things up a little bit, and life is full of change. We see it happen all the time, in education, in relationships, in finances. you, You think about just a relationship in and of itself from going to dating, to engaged, to then married. There's a lot of change that takes place positionally in that realm from having no kids to having your first kid and wanting to protect every little move they make. And then you have your second kid and you're like, nah, you're fine, it's all good. You, know? like, you were the paranoid parent like I was. I was fearful of every little step. Like, why is she walking? She's gonna kill herself. And then for me, it was more of like out of fear, I was trying to control something that was out of my control. A change of them growing up and becoming mature to a teenager. We pray for you if you have a teenager in your house. We love you. We support you. We appreciate you. To those, when those teenagers then become of age and they graduate from high school, they go into college, they get married, they have their own kids, you become a grandparent. All these things, life always has transitions. And how we deal with them will set us up with the right attitude in response to that. The transition usually speaks to the need to change the response we have towards the change itself. And so to put our feet where our faith is, we might have to do some soul searching in the process. There's a transition that takes place here in the book of James, and to prepare us for this, James is setting the stage to introduce us to something that we will see throughout the rest of the book. The first one is controlling the tongue, controlling our tongue. That might kind of sound weird, in a sense, because how can you control your tongue? There's a way in which we are to possess the words that come out of our mouth that ultimately dictate our attitude, our behavior, and our actions. So controlling the tongue will become a key element, a key theme in the book of James in just a few chapters. Caring for the less fortunate is another one. As we looked at the very end of this first chapter, pure and true religion is this, to visit widows and orphans and to take care of them. And then the third one is this careful consideration of our relationship to the world. What is it about our relationship to the world that needs to be considered carefully? How we act? Do we fit in? Do we stand out? How is it that I operate my life with worldly standards compared to how I should operate my life in the realm of spirituality. And so here in James 1, there's also a very similar phrase in the book of Ephesians. Paul writes to a church in Ephesus, and he tells them about this way of having to control your tongue, of having to care for the less fortunate, and how to carefully consider the relationships To the world that we have. And the reason they're so similar is not because James read Paul's letter or because Paul read James's letter, but because they both are taking from an excerpt in the Old Testament book of Zechariah chapter 3. They're both talking about the same thing, which is getting rid of the old life and growing into a new one. And so with that in mind of growing out of an old and growing into a new, there is something about this theme that we should take haste to listen to, which is our first look at this idea of quick to listen, quick to listen. There's a reason James uses that phrase quick to listen because he knows that we're not necessarily easy to listen quickly. Most of us want to Spit out something that we've been trying to muster up for so long and we've been waiting and waiting and finally you can't but not speak out of order whether it's in a class. I know when I was a kid I, I had a fear of getting in trouble with my teachers or the principal. I never wanted to go to the principal's office and I made it my mission to never do that and I, I never did until high school when I threw a kid into the locker room shower because he was being a punk, but that's a whole different story at a different time. But the whole point was me, out of fear, not wanting to go to the principal's office, and so I always made sure, you know, your hands are folded on the desk, and yes, Mrs. whatever her name, I don't remember her name, but there was this wanting to make sure I wasn't getting into trouble, and so I was quick to listen in that sense, but when someone riles you up, and you start talking about something that might be a little offensive to you or something, We're not as quick to listen as we think we are. And so in the original language, in this Greek language, James is saying, hurry up and listen. Hurry up and listen. It's this rapid pursuit to listen quickly, this idea of hurry, gather around. I have something important I want to tell you. I don't know if you've ever said that to your kids or to someone about an exciting event that is taking place. And you tell your kids or you tell someone that you're excited about something. You want them to gather around. You want everyone to know whether it was the the engagement that took place or an event that's coming up or a vacation or something like that. We need to be quick to listen. And then the second one is slow to speak. Why is it so often we get those reversed? We're so quick to speak and we're slow to listen. Slow to speak comes from this idea of having hesitation or delay. Almost like, what am I going to say? What are the words that are going to come out of my mouth? Are they going to be beneficial? Are they going to tear someone down? That's the type of hesitation. It's this pondering. It's this questioning of, should I actually say this? I know for me, social media wise, when I go on Twitter and you can see all these different people, you can tell that someone was more quick to speak and slow to listen rather than quick to listen and slow to speak. I used to be one of them. I'm sure we've all spouted out at some point in time in an abrupt way. And so what I did for myself, needing an outlet to talk to someone or to just get it off my chest, right? That's an excuse we use. I just need to get this off my chest. You're like, oh, great. Here we go. (laughs) They found something wrong with me, and now they need to tell me, and they're going to offend me or whatever. I created uh, in my notes app, I created a folder called Things I Want to Tweet But Won't and I I write them out just so I can get it off my chest because I know that if I let this out into the world for the millions of people that are on Twitter, for the hundred people that follow me, I know that I will regret the things I've said before. And usually, we can't regret the things we've never said because it's never been said. It hasn't been put out there, if you will. And so as James is giving us this idea of being quick to listen and slow to speak, It's because he's talking to those who have issues of anger. If you know anyone who has issues of anger, you know that this is a very good lesson. That it's this idea, not necessarily that less talk is better than more, but he's telling us to contemplate the words that come out of our mouth. To contemplate the things that we want to say to someone. How are they going to receive it? And how will they respond And so it's this idea of not allowing our anger to control the words that come out of our mouth. In fact, the Bible even says in Psalm 140 that before you speak anything on your lips, God knows altogether the words you're going to say. Meaning that even before you speak something, God already knows the matter of your heart. He already knows what your desire is before those words even come out, which is why Jesus was so concerned with where our heart was and not necessarily with the behavior modification that we think sometimes Jesus was after. Jesus was not about trying to modify my behavior. He was trying to transform my heart. As a young kid, I was a very angry kid. Even more recent, I've also had issues of anger, and this has always been kind of the thing I've had to work through. And I didn't know this up until recently, but when my sister, who's six years older than me, used to babysit me and my two younger brothers, she told my parents at one point, I will never watch Brad again. I will never babysit him. My parents were like, what? What happened? He's like, He's, She called me, and I quote, a demon child because of my anger and because of my rage. I don't remember any of this. Um, Probably because I specifically blocked it out of my memory, but she said I was a demon child at some point, like, I was running around with things I could find in the house to beat her with. And she's six years older, and she's like, I don't want, like, this kid is going to kill me. She was genuinely fearful of her life, and I was some six-year-old kid, and she's like, no, you would scream so loud and so abruptly that I thought you were demon-possessed. Like, it would, it would literally jack up my vocal cords when I was little because of how much screaming and anger I had. I was the kid in the family who, when your mom told you to get back here when she's trying to talk to you, I just kept walking. I was like, you get back here, and I'm still talking to you. Like, and your point? Well, I, don't, I don't get it. What's your point? I don't care. I was very sarcastic and very angry, and in this idea of James wanted to speak out to those of us who have anger. It's not that there are a select few who have anger, but different triggers by what brings out the anger in us. And so this anger can easily be found within us, and this anger can also be perpetuated in others. But notice the contrast between the anger of humans and the righteousness of God. That is anger that boils up from our humanity versus righteousness that is produced in us by God. James is using a tone of voice that insinuates that we should know better than what we've done. It's always after the fact that we wish we would have taken back what we said or what we did or whatever it might be. When a child knows better to do something that could harm them, a parent's response might be out of disappointment that they did not listen the first time. That was what my dad would tell me, and I think it's kind of the stereotypical dad these days where he says, I'm not mad at you, I'm just disappointed. And out of that it's like, well, why are you disappointed? The same disappointment I didn't, wanna, uh, I didn't want my teachers or my principal to think I had was the same thing about my dad as well. I don't want to disappoint my dad like I've let him down. I feel like there's something that I could have done differently. And that's what it is for followers of Jesus. When we're dealing with this, James is speaking into our lives by means of rediscovering our roots, rediscovering that the righteousness that we have is not based on merit, but on mercy. It's not based on achieving goals, but by receiving grace, In fact, I would go so far to say that credible Christian relationships require careful attention to others' perspectives. And if we are to be ruled by our anger or by trying to speak quickly, we may not easily win others to Christ. Proverbs 11.30 says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life and the one who is wise saves lives. That someone might know us By our fruit. That's what Jesus said. Does our fruit produce this anger? Does this this fruit produce in us something that we wish we wouldn't produce? James is getting at the fact that there is a way in which we can identify the things in our life that make us angry or frustrated. And sometimes they are righteous, but most times they aren't. Some think the order is not important by the quick to listen and slow to speak, but so many of us want to get our message across before we get interrupted by someone else. The verse does not say be quick to speak and slow to listen. In fact, the Jewish rabbi said it best about this in the book of James. He says, this is the reason why we have two ears and only one mouth, that we may hear more and speak less. The ears are always open, ever ready to receive instruction, but the tongue is surrounded with a double row of teeth to hedge it in and to keep it within proper bounds. And the rabbis would use this to teach Jewish children to be quick to listen and slow to speak. This is not a new revelation. This is something that has been in the works for thousands of years, and I think it's something that we could identify with a little bit better like I said earlier, we rarely have to take back the words we don't say, but we often have to take back the words we do say. Proverbs 10:19: "When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent or wise." You see, we have more troubleshooting with our tongue than we do our ears. We can troubleshoot the things in our life based on the things that we say or even based on the things that we hear. And so we are so quick to jump to wrong conclusions when we're quick to speak. We are so quick to judge when we are quick to speak. We are quick to say the worst and we're quick to offer advice when we are quick to speak. When really we should be quick to listen. We, we tend to naturally pronounce opinions and verdicts on others while not allowing the same to be said to us. We want to project these things onto other people. Well, you should believe this, and you should believe this, and this is how it actually goes, and this is what it actually is. But when we're receiving it, we don't necessarily want that from others. And so the last challenge here from James is that we would be slow to anger. In fact, the Bible says that anger is not a sin. It's not not a sin to be angry, but to act out upon an anger that is self-motivated by its own achievements rather than by winning someone over to Christ or by winning a brother over back because of their sin. This is not a reference to outbursts of frustration, but outbursts of rage. And so we must be hesitant to allow our anger to settle into something that can be nursed and that can then control us. Last week, we looked at this temptation cycle, if you remember that, and we looked at this idea of how easy something can lure us, entice us, and then control us. And so James is using this same idea with how anger can start to conceive of something in us and then when it gives birth to it, it controls us. But remember that this is being spoken to into the lives of Christian people, not to non-believers. This would be an easy sermon to speak to someone who is not a follower of Jesus. But to speak into the lives of believers, of people who truly say they are committed to following Jesus, this is something that would makes someone question their following Jesus because of the fact that the anger is found within us. And so in this community, these three issues stemmed from a place where wrath and speech were linked together whenever anger provoked speech, and that often both of these issues came from not listening carefully enough. Have you ever experienced that before, when you wish someone would just listen to what you have to say without having to say, okay, that's great, but let me tell you this. I know early on that was something that I had to work on in my marriage to my wife. I was very quick to speak because I was the, the, the fix it guy. I wanted to fix it. Okay, you say there's an issue, how do we fix it? She's like, I don't want you to fix it, I just want you to listen. And in my mind, I'm like, well, the way to listen is to fix it, right? the way to get rid of this whole situation is not for me to listen to what you have to say, but for me to fix what you think I should do or say or whatever it is. And early on, it became very apparent that my listening was actually just this way of trying to figure out ways in which I could speak back into that situation. So one time I tried just genuinely just sitting quiet and I just listened. And she was done, and she's like, aren't you going to say anything? And I said, well, you know, like, I was convicted earlier. Um, Someone told me that I'm actually not listening to you. It was an older pastor friend of mine. He's like, well, you're not listening to your wife. And I'm like, how dare you? Why would you say that about me? Like, I'm listening, because I'm listening in order to do something about it. But there are times when people just want us to simply listen. And I wonder if our listening might lead more people to Jesus than the quick response to something they have to say when we spout our opinions, when we get fired up, we are not always claiming true Christian fellowship or even a desire to see others know Jesus. We seem to be more preoccupied with others knowing who we are and all the information that we have as we are involved in these affairs of the world. You know, it's been said to pastors that you will never lack an audience when someone who is hurting is listening. And it's true because we're always looking to see how Jesus might speak into the lives of other people. And as a pastor, that's something that I've had to learn to be quick to listen to people when they come in for counseling or when they come in for advice or a prayer request. It's not that they're asking me to fix their problem, but that they want someone to listen to that might give them consideration in their life. And so we can all find hurt at different intersections of our life, and we will always be careful to lean into God's word for our life. And I think the same could be true of anger as well. We will never lack an audience when someone is reeling from anger. Anger may not easily reveal itself, but when it does reveal itself, it's only revealing what has already been there this whole time. Anger can stem from frustration to kids not listening. That's a, that's a big thing in our house. Like we have these charts that we have for our kids, just kind of like a tangible way for them to, uh, to know that they're doing well. And so at the end of this chart, when they fill out however many stickers on this chart, we you know, take them to get ice cream, or we take them out to dinner, or whatever it might be, and we do something nice to kind of reward them in a way. And one of the big things in our, in our family is listening the first time. Because my daughter, you know, I'll tell her even last night, like, hey, it's time for a bath. She's like, okay, watch this. And she does a handstand or a cartwheel. I'm like, that's great. Awesome. Great job. Like, we'll get you in gymnastics at some other point when it's not $1,000 a month or whatever. And she's not listening. I'm like, Finley, you got to listen the first time. She's like, I know, but watch this and she wants to show me something, and I realize that I became so legalistic in my thinking that she's not listening the first time that I've been missing out on a lot of the achievements and the accomplishments that she's been making as she gets older. You see, we can become so legalistic in our approach to people that you're just not listening to me. You need to figure this out, and we get frustrated when we feel like people aren't listening correctly. But then there are times when my daughter listens the first time. She's like, Dad, you didn't even ask me to make my bed, and I did it this morning. I'm like, good, let's keep that going every single day. And it doesn't doesn't always happen, but when does the frustration in my life come out? Only when I feel like she should be listening to me rather than whatever else she's got going on. But it's ultimately because of my self-centeredness that I want her to listen so that others can see that, wow, she listens to her father really well. But what if I create an environment that is one of um, haste and one of hostility where I'm not championing her in other ways, but I want her to champion me in being the right parent. You see, anger can stem from frustration to trials that come up in our life. God, I, I don't get this. I'm frustrated, I'm angry that this is happening to me. And we come to this whole conclusion like, why me, God? It doesn't make sense. We can get frustrated and angry, and that's not necessarily a sin. But when we choose to allow the trial to become the temptation that we talked about last week, it can easily trip us up and create within us an anger that causes us to sin, an anger that would actually keep us from trusting God in that trial. Anger can stem from coworkers, from a spouse, from your favorite team losing, from pretty much anything that doesn't go your way. And so that's why our hearing needs to have greater powers of acceleration than our speaking. If being slow to speak means we will also be slow to anger, then being quick to speak carries this implication with an obvious danger that our tongue will lose control and begin to express the enmity in our hearts through the anger on our lips. Angry Christian is an oxymoron. Our salvation does not automatically equal our anger being erased, however, but most times our anger is not used righteously as much as it is used to criticize others, to, what, put them in their place, sometimes sarcastically, And even jarring to accuse someone of not being able to come to know Christ. That's why we must check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. I know that's kind of cliche, but it works. Because look at this analogy of a mirror. You've all seen a mirror, right? You all look beautiful this morning, by the way. You guys checked your mirror and you recognized that there was a need to brush your teeth and fix your hair and all these other things. This piece of glass can reveal a lot about a person, can't it? When you look in a mirror, you see all the imperfections, all the impurities that are on our skin, and we we see this complexity of how we were created. Most people don't leave home, I said most, people don't leave home without first looking in a mirror from head to toe. You know, there's an old tale about a soldier who was hanging a mirror from a tree as he was shaving his beard. And as he was shaving this morning, a witch doctor came by, and she was fascinated that this soldier was looking so intently at the tree, but as she got closer, she saw what he was doing. And so he was shaving his beard, and she was kind of wondering like, what this mirror was all about. And he told her about the mirror. She looked into the mirror, and she was spooked by what she saw, and so she took off, and she ran in the opposite direction in disgust. But she came back the next morning, this soldier and asked him if she could buy this mirror from him and he said no this is my mirror she was like okay that's weird and so she insisted that she must have this thing so that she can study what she called its witchcraft and so the soldier obliged and sold her the mirror she then took the mirror off the tree and smashed it into the ground and the soldier was upset about this and asked her why she did this and she replied I broke it so now that ugly lady can't stare at me anymore And I think we can also look in the mirror and think like, why do I see the reflection I see in the mirror? I don't like what I see. I don't like that this is who I am or this is how my hair goes or this is how my nose is or whatever else it might be about who we are. But let me just say this, God created you to be you. He didn't create you to be anyone else. He's not asking you to look into the mirror and wish you were someone else, but to finally find you as God created you. So don't use the mirror wishing to find some other reflection than your own. Often when we look in the mirror, we are not satisfied with what we see. Most of us see the outward appearance, and so the imagery of this mirror is that we would take a long, hard look into the mirror and ask ourselves what we see and if we are okay with it. Not by our appearance, but by what's on the inside. Jesus said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I I think that same principle can apply. From the abundance of the heart, the body is content in who it is in Christ. In totality, the point of that is whatever is in our hearts will ultimately be revealed by our behavior, by our speech, and our thought process. If you look in the mirror and you see something in your teeth, your life mission, your goal in life is to get rid of that thing. You ever see someone and they're, they're smiling at you and they got something in your teeth and you're like, oh, <laughs> oh, but you don't say anything. Have You ever been that person, whether you were that person that someone didn't want to say and ultimately, you didn't want to like offend them in public, like, bro, whoa, 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 like you got something up in your teeth or whatever. But then when you realize that you're the one that has the thing in your tooth, you're like, I wish someone would have told me. I wish I would have seen that ahead of time. If someone sees something in the mirror that they can do something about and don't do it, they've become complacent with that being attached to who they are. And so James is using this analogy of a mirror to talk about someone who looks into a mirror, sees everything going on in their life, and walks away and forgets completely everything about it. And I think that that can also be applied here this morning. When we come to church, it's almost this mirror-like experience where we're looking and seeing the things that God is revealing in our hearts that are complex and the infirmities and the insecurities that we have. And then we leave Sunday and it's as if nothing ever happened. It's as if we never saw anything in the mirror and we're just complacent like, well, you know what, this week, maybe I just won't fix that thing. If you look into the spiritual mirror and don't like what you see, yet you carry yourself like nothing is wrong or nothing needs a little bit of an adjustment, you have become complacent with that attitude and with that behavior and there's no one else to blame but yourself because this morning is an opportunity for you to see your reflection, and to do something about it as the Holy Spirit prompts you to do something about it. In fact, it's not the fault of the mirror if you don't like the reflection you see. And yet, what do we do? We blame the mirror. I can't believe you would do that to me. I can't believe you would reveal that about who I am. How dare you, mirror? Like, what are you doing? No one ever says that. Because we ultimately know that the mirror is not the thing to be blamed. In fact, the thing the mirror is revealing is something that's already been there this whole time. And so from that place, we must know that we all have to look into the mirror to see what we see and to see what we can do about modifying what is there. But don't be fooled. This is not behavior modification. This is divine transformation. When Jesus was preaching his greatest sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount. He was not trying to modify anyone's behavior. He wasn't saying, well, you know what? Let's, let's sit down and let's talk about how you have outbursts of anger or how you're greedy or whatever else it was. Jesus was not after this behavior modification. He was after getting at the heartstrings of those who are listening. Because you see, Jesus is more concerned with your heart than your body because if he can get to your heart, he can get to everything else. You see, Jesus is more invested in who you are rather than what you do because who you are will only reveal what you do. If you truly call yourself a Christian this morning, you don't have to go to someone and say, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer, although that helps. But what it might just do is affirm what someone's already thinking about you. Not that we live by the not that we live by the approval of someone else, but by what we've already been doing our, our whole life, it would just be like, I knew there was something about you. I knew that you were spiritual. Even if that's the starting point. Even if someone says, you know what? I, ju- I knew you were spiritual. It's kind of like a, a, a buzzword around these days. Someone who is spiritual. And you say, well, I'm not just spiritual. I- I'm a Christian. And I believe this, and I've learned this, and I know this, and whatever else it is, Jesus is not concerned with what you do as much as he's concerned with who you are. Because whose you are will just reveal what you do, and what you do just reveals whose you are. It's the indication that something has changed. It's an indication that there has been transformation that has taken place. And so the barometer for putting our feet where our faith is, is in how we practically apply our faith in our life, in our marriage, in our parenting, in our education, in our encounter with strangers, in our connections and relationships. How things go is how we view our God. That's why part of what we were doing earlier with mentioning partnering with Mercy Hospital in India is because we don't want to just be a church that says, we want to impact the world. As much as we want to do that, this is a tangible way for us to say, you know what, we, we don't have much, but we want to give to the work of the ministry that is happening around the world as brothers and sisters in Christ as we see them dealing with things that some of us know what it's like to deal with if you lost a loved one to COVID, if you saw the, 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 the type of damage that it can do not just physically but, but mentally to people and the lockdowns and the not lockdown and the lockdown and the not lockdown and all these things, there has been a mental collapse of the American mind because of what we've experienced through this whole pandemic. But God is also using this as a means for us to look at the reflection in the mirror, to see God, what are you doing in my life? And how are you wanting me to meet people where they're at? And so the only way a crisis can be turned around is when it meets Christ. That's it. Whether you have a personal crisis and you're you're feeling something inside that no one else knows about, and mentally speaking that you're dealing with these thoughts and these different ideas in your mind that no one else knows about, when your crisis meets Christ, it ends right there. And the, the ultimate crisis, when we realized that we were dead in our sin, as the Bible says, when that crisis of being dead in our sin met Christ, He brought us to new life. Many times when people encounter Christ, it is through the tangible approach from people who love God and love others. That's part of why our mission statement is learning to love and lead like Jesus. Because Jesus said not to just love Him with all our heart, soul, and mind, but to what? love our neighbor as ourself. And so James says that true religion is when we meet the widow and the orphan where they are, and true religion is expressed in what we do among those who tend to be hidden and marginalized. James's half-brother Jesus, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he said this in Matthew 25:40, which is what we read earlier during our offering exhortation, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers you did it to me. Because from Psalm 20, we can truly say this about ourselves, that some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. We have learned what it's like to be the hands and feet of Jesus, and now it's time for us to look into the mirror, to see the reflection, and to identify ways we can rid of the impurities we might see. For if I look in the mirror and I see my anger easily awakened by my misunderstanding of someone who is an outcast or who is marginalized, then I must go to God and not pray that our world would change, but that first my heart would change. If we want to see revival in our cities, we have to first see revival in our hearts. And I wonder if we haven't seen that revival that everyone wants to talk about because no one's willing to talk about the revival that has to first take place here. Psalm 139, 23, 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's from that place where in response to that, we can easily get manipulated into believing that when someone brings something to our attention, like, well, you you get very angry easily. I do not. And you're like, you just proved my point. Or like there's a, a word in our house, we're not allowed to say stupid. And anytime uh, I say stupid, my kids will say, you're not supposed to say that. You need to ask God for forgiveness. And I'm like, well, excuse me? Like, let me talk to you about your sins. You know, like we easily want to identify the sins of others with excusing our own. But the psalmist is saying, search me, O God, in my heart. If someone brings something to your attention, even if it's not true, You can run to this psalm. Search me, oh God. Like, maybe I'm so blinded to the thing that's going on in my life that I don't think is there, but clearly someone else does. And even if it's not truly there, search me, oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And if someone brings something to us, rather than trying to defend our honor or our integrity or whatever else it might be, the Bible says that God will vindicate you. As we come to the communion table this morning, we use communion as the mirror to see the reflection and what impurities must be removed. As we come to the communion table this morning, as we pray in just a few moments, would you consider the cup that is in your hand and would you use Psalm 139 to discover if there's something in my heart that is not right or it's something in my heart that has crept in unnoticed that maybe I'm unaware of, And let God be the one who vindicates you. And let God be the one to try you and to know your thoughts and to see if there is a grievous way in me. Let's pray together.